biggest sporting events will take place for the next 16 days involving hundreds of athletes from all around the world. The premier event will be the marathon, especially since it will be run over the same course as the original event, which gave it its name. From the site of the Battle of Marathon to Athens and the Panathinaikon Stadium, where the Olympic Games were revived in 1896. The marathon also holds out probably uh, the best hope for Britain in terms of a gold medal, in the shape of the world record holder Paula Radcliffe. Now, imagine the scene on the 22nd of August. Paula is competing for the lead against some of the top women's athletes. Imagine if someone stepped out from the crowd and attempted to trip her up. Imagine if a group of people suddenly barred her way asking for autographs. I don't think they would be treated too kindly by the officials, let alone by Paula herself. Such an occurrence is hopefully unthinkable. But let me take you back in time. Not as far back as the original marathon in 490 BC, but forward some 500 years to a similar situation which was far more serious. This event actually happened and was recorded by a man named Mark in a gospel he wrote which he describes as the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. After some two and a half years, the twelve disciples, or followers Jesus chose, are finally informed by Jesus of their final destination and what awaits him there. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. These events will take place in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus and the Twelve set out on a final marathon journey, beginning from their home base in a town called Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem, the nation's capital. However, Lining the route are crowds of people seeking out Jesus. Some have different agendas and priorities. Some are enemies seeking to try and trip Jesus up. And others have personal requests which Jesus' disciples feel are too trivial for Jesus to bother with. Today, as we resume our series in Mark, following Jesus, we see how Jesus deals with two issues relating to marriage and children, as recorded in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16, page 1014 in the Pew Bibles. And it will be important for us to see these incidents within the ultimate purpose of Jesus' life and ministry, to see how he stays on track on the route the Father has marked out for him. And in doing this, we can learn how we can do the same. For everyone who follows Jesus will find that they have to stay on track despite demanding people and difficult subjects that come their way. So, as we approach this passage, let's just pray briefly. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage which contains many sensitive issues, we thank you that your Holy Spirit knows just how to challenge our hearts. We thank you that when we feel challenged and convicted by your spirit it is always for our good 
And so we pray today that you will help us all to come under the authority of your word and the words of your Son in this passage. We ask for help in Jesus' name. Amen. We could call the first incident the marriage trap. We aren't told the specific content of what Jesus was teaching in verse 1. Though we can be sure of the general subject, which was the kingdom of God and the good news of the gospel. We can also be almost certain that Jesus was not dealing with the subject of divorce, as he did, for example, in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Or that the question the Pharisees asked in verse 2 related to something Jesus had said about divorce. Rather, their query is a test question designed to trip Jesus up by making him say something incriminating. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The word translated tested means to test someone's defences or to try and get someone off guard. It's used twice more in the uh, Gospel of Mark. One of the Pharisees, but first and foremost, of Satan himself. When you remember, he tempted, same word, tested Jesus in the wilderness following his baptism. This is another attempt to divert Jesus from the course the Father has planned to him. In particular, this last leg of the journey to Jerusalem, upon which so much hinges. So, what is the trap which is set for Jesus? Well, there are two possibilities here. The first is that this may be a specific trap in relation to the marriage of Herod Antipas, in whose territory Jesus is now moving. King Herod had embarked on an illicit affair with his brother's wife, and he and she had left their respective partners and then married. We learned earlier in Mark's Gospel that John the Baptist had repeatedly and publicly condemned Herod for this. It is not right for you, he had said, to have your brother's wife. The result was that Herod had him put in prison, and through the scheming of his wife and her daughter, eventually had him beheaded. Now the Pharisees may be asked their question in the hope that Jesus will say something similar to John, and therefore suffer the same fate as John at the hands of Herod. Thus, ridding them of Jesus, their religious adversary. And I think that may well be the specific trap that is laid for Jesus. However, there is also surely a more general attempt which the Pharisees and their allies tried on many occasions to try to get Jesus to say something which contradicts God's law given through Moses. Their test question is asked in relation to a passage on the subject of divorce in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, page 202 in the Pew Bible. In fact, the issue that this section of the law deals with is to ban a man from remarrying a former wife whom he divorced, who then remarried and was divorced again. Quite tricky and very specific. However, over the centuries, the rabbis and Jewish legal experts had focused on a phrase in the opening verse regarding the grounds for divorce. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, 
and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends it from his house. Now, the big debate centered on what something indecent meant. And at the time of Jesus, there were two schools of thought holding opposite points of view. The first was conservative. And it was promoted by a rabbi called Shammai. Rabbi Shammai said that something indecent meant adultery. And adultery, he said, was the only grounds for a man to divorce his wife. However, another point of view followed a rabbi called Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel took a very liberal approach to this whole subject. He said that something indecent could mean almost anything. So, if the wife cooks her husband's food ill by over-salting it or over-roasting it, she is to be put away, says Rabbi Hillel. Human nature being what it was, and still is, it's no surprise that Rabbi Hillel's view was by far most popular. But, what about Jesus? Which party will he support? Whichever way, he will lose support. Now, let's just take a step back for a moment. The same issues are with us today, are they not? Not least in churches. And you will find books written by Christians covering this whole spectrum so that whichever position you take, you can find support for it. Even today, perhaps some of you are wondering, what is the official line of this church on divorce and remarriage? And yet, that is, in a sense, to miss what this passage is about. It is not Jesus giving pastoral advice to a married couple who are having marriage problems. No, it's an answer to a test question designed by his enemies to trap him. And so, in response, Jesus, who sees through their trap, refuses to commit himself in public. Instead, he addresses the root problem, dealing with the cause, not the symptom, and he focuses on the real issue, which is not divorce, but marriage. So, let's look more closely at the response of Jesus. And firstly, the root problem, which Jesus says, is a hardening of the spiritual arteries. When the Pharisees ask about the legality of divorce, notice carefully the question Jesus asks them. What did Moses command you? And they have to reply, with honesty, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now notice the two verbs. Jesus asked what Moses commanded. The Pharisees respond with what Moses permitted. You see, divorce is not a command, but a concession. A concession to human sinfulness in order to limit its painful consequences, especially in Moses and Jesus' day for the woman, who was often treated like a piece of property that could be disposed of at the whim of her husband. It's a little bit like if you go into the hospital and you come out the main door, you've got to hold your breath because of all the smoke. People aren't allowed to smoke inside the hospitals and no smoking zone. And you come out and you find that many doctors and nurses as well, and ordinary people, are smoking, hardened smokers. Yet it would be wrong to think that that, that concession means that the hospital is suddenly allowed smoking. It's still a no smoking zone. And your doctor's not going to advise you to smoke as a good thing for your health. But the Pharisees were using this 
law of Moses as a command, not a concession. And all they want to know is how easily they can dispose of their wives. In effect, how far can we go, Jesus? Sinclair Ferguson comments, What was intended to be a barrier against license, some of the Pharisees had turned into a bridge for easy divorce. And nothing much has changed over the centuries. For the human heart is still the same. And especially men, although not exclusively them, want to be able to get rid of their wives and justify it with an appeal to Scripture. Now, Moses, Jesus does not negate what Moses wrote. For it wasn't his God's word. But instead, he focuses on the real issue, which is not divorce, but marriage. God, through Moses, did not command divorce. He permitted it. But God, also through Moses, who wrote both Genesis and Deuteronomy, did command marriage. And so Jesus takes the Pharisees back to God's original plan in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. But at the beginning of creation, says Jesus, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Marriage, as God intends, means leaving father and mother, uniting with a wife, and becoming one flesh. This means that a husband and wife are joined together by God himself. Not just a physical union, but emotional and spiritual. And marriage derives its sanctity from the fact that behind it stands the authority of God himself. So, divorce, rather than being a matter of theological debate about the details of what God commands, is a matter of the utmost seriousness of tearing apart something which God has joined together. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. But, you may ask, and this is such a personal and painful question for many today, not least Christians, is there to be no divorce at all? Well, Jesus does not address the issue here in public, for he doesn't answer the Pharisees' question. However, as on other occasions, the disciples raised the matter privately with Jesus later, when they were in the house, verse 10. And the answer Jesus gives seems to allow no exception. The teaching of Jesus here is that divorce plus remarriage equals adultery, both for the man and for the woman, if she initiates, because in Greek culture, a woman could also divorce her husband. However, when we look at the Gospels generally, we encounter a strange problem. In Matthew's account of this same encounter with the Pharisees, there is included by Jesus an exception clause. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, that's the exception clause, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Jesus also includes this exception in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 32. So, the big question is, why doesn't Mark include it in his account? Well, the answer is, and it's a source of much debate, we really don't know. It's a bit of a mystery. 
the most likely reason is that for the audience Mark is writing for, it would go without saying that, divorce, that adultery was the grounds for divorce and remarriage, and so Mark just doesn't say it. What is clear is that in the current debate between the liberal and conservative camps, Jesus is firmly in the conservative camp. The person, be it male or female, who divorces for any other reason than adultery has committed a sin in God's eyes. That does not mean that forgiveness is not possible, but Jesus is, unlike the Pharisees, focusing on prevention, not cure, at this point. And his teaching is so radical for his day that the disciples respond in Matthew by saying, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. The reply of Jesus may not be the favourite verse of many, but it's well worth taking to heart if you are unmarried. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Our society assumes that to be sexually inactive is an impossibility. But the teaching of Jesus, who was himself celibate and unmarried, challenges this assumption. Jesus reminds us that God's original plan for human beings in marriage at the beginning of creation should be in force today. So, Jesus avoids the trap set by the Pharisees. But on his way, he encounters another situation which threatens, if not to divert him, at least to delay him on his journey. Arising out of this is what we could call, secondly, the children's charter. As Jesus continues on his way, we read that people, the masculine term suggests fathers as well as mothers, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. It was the custom of rabbis that they would lay their hands on children and invoke God's blessing on them. And it was natural that the parents would expect Jesus to invoke the same, but far greater perhaps, blessing on their children. In what follows this attempt, we see two negative responses. The former is that of the disciples, who, as David Garland puts it, act like truculent bouncers to rebuke the people and to stop them from doing the practice. Maybe they were trying to protect Jesus from excessive demands and his attention. But the issue here is that children are the focus of the sought blessing. In the time of Jesus, children had no status at all. The Apostle Paul was not exaggerating when writing to Christians in the Roman province of Galatia. He described the children of wealthy parents as having no more status than a slave before they came of age. Galatians 4 verse 1. There's a famous letter written in 1 BC by a poor labourer to his pregnant wife in Alexandria where he advises her to dispose of the child if it's a girl keep the child if it's a boy. Well, the disciples would not advocate such drastic steps, there is no doubt that they, like us, were affected by the prevailing culture and regarded children as beneath the attention of Jesus. No doubt the Pharisees felt the same, which was part and parcel of promoting divorce regardless of its impact on children. And our society does the same, does it not? 
in seeking to make divorce quicker and easier, to abort healthy babies, and yet claiming to care about children by seeking to prevent parents from disciplining them. Whatever the motives of the disciples, we next see a strong negative response on the part of Jesus to them. For we read that Jesus was indignant. A strong word expressing great displeasure, a mixture of irritation and impatience. Now, why such a strong negative reaction? One that we would hardly credit from the person of Jesus. The first reason is because there is an example they have failed to follow. Just recently, Jesus had chided his disciples for arguing about which of them was the greatest. And by way of illustration, he had stood a little child among them and said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, you would think that faced with more little children, the disciples would have remembered what they had seen and heard and welcomed the children with open arms. But instead, they rebuked the parents and prevent the children access. So, perhaps it's understandable that Jesus was indignant. But behind this is something that is even more important and fundamental, which grieved Jesus. That here was a lesson they had failed to learn. For he says to his disciples, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now as we saw in the previous incident with children, we must not read our own romantic or sentimental view of children into what Jesus is saying here. The child likeness here does not refer to some supposedly inherent quality that children have, such as humility, trustfulness, willingness to believe, Children can also be demanding, sulky, thankless, and selfish. We call it childish behavior, and adults do it from time to time as well. So this is not childish, but childlike. Again, the issue is to do with status. And in Jesus' day, the children had none. They simply received what they were given, and what they received was not based on any merit. It was a kind gift from a loving parent. So it was and is with the kingdom of God. You do not gain admission on the basis of who you are or what you have done, but simply by God's grace. A hard lesson for both Pharisees and disciples alike, for it's contrary to the way that society operates and people think. And to demonstrate the counter-cultural values of the kingdom, not by merit, but by grace, Jesus takes the children in his arms and blesses them. The story ends not with a negative response, but with a positive response. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, the challenge to us is whether we have understood what Jesus is teaching. A lesson that we learned several weeks ago when Peter preached in Mark chapter 9. Have we received the kingdom of God like a little child? Do we think we will gain admission on the basis of who we are and what we have done? 
Or have we come empty-handed to Christ? Just like a little child seeking his blessing. As Jesus put it on another occasion, speaking to a Pharisee, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to be born again. John 3 verse 3. And if we have done that, if we have come like a little child, do we receive others on the same basis? Do we welcome little children? Or do we treat them as the disciples did and as the world does? On the basis of status or merit? On what they have done or what they have failed to do? Even those who have committed adultery and broken their marriage vows. The Lord said through the prophet Malachi that he hated divorce. But he does not hate divorced people. He longs to forgive those who truly repent and seek him. The first marathon was run by a Greek soldier named Phidippus or Phidippides. Phidippus ran from the battlefield at Marathon to Athens to tell the citizens of that city that the Persians had been defeated and to warn them of the arrival of the Persian navy. On arriving in the city, he uttered one Greek word. I'm sure it's familiar. Nike, which means victory. And then he collapsed and died. But the city was saved. The journey of Jesus, despite the possible diversions and delays, continued. Continued to Jerusalem. Continued to the cross. And on a cross, in Jerusalem, Jesus uttered a similar cry of triumph. Ketelestai, which means, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and died. So the work of salvation was completed. And unlike Phidippus, Jesus rose again from the grave. He is alive. Now, those who put their trust in him are called to follow him and like him to run the race that God has set out for us. This is our challenge this morning as I leave you with some words from the New Testament book of Hebrews. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're just sing a closing hymn, number 22, if you're using...